Okay, good morning. Welcome everyone. This is our first session all together as a group. Uh, and we're gonna try to dive in in this session. We're gonna try to dive in in this session uh, to some of the core material around uh, covenant and obligation and what it is we're even talking about when we talk about this. So I want to start with a couple kind of introductory words about um, the notion of obligation, where it sits in in the context of covenant uh, and our contemporary moment, then give you a sense of what is kind of going to be a varied uh, shiur with three different parts, and then do those three parts, the last of which will have some room and space for reflection and discussion. So I think it's fair to say that there are many, uh, many sacred cows that are regularly slaughtered in our contemporary culture. Uh, there are many things that used to be taken for granted as norms that govern society, as conventions that people adhered to uh, in all kinds of areas of life, assumptions of what it meant to be a religious person, uh, traditional person and that are being reevaluated in all kinds of ways such that it's very hard to find any kind of principle around which there is broad consensus on a whole range of issues. But in that world and perhaps because of that kind of reassessment and, and breaking down of, of various past conventions, I think it's fair to say that there's probably nothing more sacred but certainly one of the most sacred things in our contemporary culture is autonomy. Is the notion that autonomy, right, auto, nomos, a law generated from oneself, the notion that I actually fundamentally get to determine who I am, what are the norms that I live by, and I respect that in you, and I expect you to respect that in me, but the notion that something outside of myself can really coerce me or force me in any way that's not self-authored to behave in a certain way, I would say is something that's increasingly foreign or in tension with our contemporary culture of how people think we should be allowed to self-define. And that sits alongside the fact of something that I think to some of us is intuitive, but it's part of what I want to unpack today, there's arguably nothing more antithetical to the fundamental articulation of what the covenant is in biblical and rabbinic terms than autonomy. Okay? Passing for a moment as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, maybe we'll get into that. This tension is part of why this topic is on my mind and I think quite frankly why we as an institution wanted to engage this today in today's Yomiyun. On some level being the bearers of a Torah that says and on some level I'll argue assumes one thing in the context of a culture uh, that actually sees that thing, <laughs> that thing of uh, of personal kind of self-direction and, uh, and autonomous narrative shaping uh, as the thing that actually should kind of power how society engages with individuals. 
It's against that backdrop that I'd like to do kind of three different things in the context of this session. And as I said, they're kind of three very different parts. We'll see how they all hang together. The first is something that the summer fellows have had a chance to do with me very briefly earlier in the summer, which is to look at one section in the Tanakh that is simply laying out what the Brit is between God and the Jewish people, and not to take for granted what it says there and to really think about the consequences of the way that Brit, that covenant, is described. That's number one. That's really just an engaging with the, with the Torah, the direct source of our discourse around covenant and obligation in the first place. The second thing that I want to then do is engage a series of sources that I want to contend to you are are or can be read as Chazal's engagement with the notion of personal autonomy, which plays out through a series of discussions of whether self-imposed oaths have any kind of ability to override or somehow interact with the other obligations of the Torah. I'll make the case for why I think that's doing that work when we get there. And then the third piece is just to reflect a little more broadly about the contemporary moment that I started with, where I think an honest assessment of not just contemporary American culture, but contemporary American Jewish culture, is that a lot of it is indeed going to a place where actually the whole notion of an externally imposed covenant that one simply inherits and does not self-author is increasingly not only foreign and potentially repellent to more and more Jews, but simply not the way business is being done. And what the ramifications are of that to the extent we come out of a tradition of the Torah and what we'll see in Chazal uh, for how we build or don't build a Jewish community. All right, those are the, those are the three pieces that I want to get into. So I want to start with Sefer Dvarim, Parshat Nitzavim, and just read excerpts of this scene, which is playing out in Arvot Moav, on the east side of the Jordan, at the end of the Torah, in the 40th year, as the people have kind of reconstituted after all the failures and setbacks in the desert, are prepared to enter the land, and are basically re-upping the agreement and the arrangement with God. Uh, welcome. If you're just coming in, there's still some seats here. Also, back there, we have some space, so find a seat, make yourself comfortable. So on page one, Moshe here is speaking to the people and explaining the terms of the covenant that are going to define this relationship of obligation played out through the mitzvot that have filled this entire book going forward. You stand here, all of you, before God, your heads of your tribes, your elders, officials, all the men of Israel, your children, your wives, even the stranger within your camp, from the woodchopper to the water drawer. And what are all of these people doing? They are being entered into the Brit that God is making with them today to become an am, a group, a nation dedicated to God, continuing from the promise that God made to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Okay, what's striking about this list of people who are being entered into the Brit? It's diversity. Great. First of all, it's diverse. There's a lot of different categories there. We have a lot of terms, and it's not just you, right? It's all kinds of subcomponents of the you. 
Great. What else? What else do we have? Yeah. It includes possibly non-Jews. Great. It includes non-Jews to the extent ger means a non-ethnic, right, an ethnic non-Israelite who is nonetheless resident in the camp. That person is there. Great. Someone we would not necessarily have expected. Good. Anything else along those lines or other lines? Yeah. It makes socioeconomic Good. Even the people who are basically the service class, uh, who may be Israelites, may be non-Israelites, who knows what it is, right? But they are a part of this society that is there. They are also in. Okay? Yeah? Okay, good. The covenant comes with sanctions, which we will come back to in a minute, and that's going to be played out a little later in this. If we just sort of round out the comments on who's in it. Yeah? Good. Good. The wives and children are in it, though they are positioned as being on some level relationally connected, it seems, through the men. But this is actually the point that I want to play, which I think on some level is the unifying theme of all these notes on the list. There is a sense in which, well, just descriptively, this is a text that probably has some degree of taking for granted that the wives and children are adjuncts to the heads of household, as it were. And yet, I actually think one of the things this text is quite consciously doing when you throw in the socioeconomic piece and the gear, who is the foreigner, is actually saying, you know all those people you think of as marginal? They are in the covenant. Okay, that is to say the statement here, the whole thrust here is, I'm not going to just use a you and then leave it to your imagination. Well, who's in, who's really in, who's connected in a derivative way. I'm going to list all the things of all the stratifications that normally describe society and actually say everyone is in. This is the feature that in the subheading here I'm referring to as comprehensive. Okay, so first thing, it's not obvious about what the Brit is. That is not an obvious way of structuring this. Doesn't mean it's a crazy way to structure it, but you easily could have structured it as you, male heads of household who are, have wealth and means, who are Israelites, you're in the covenant, and you're responsible to make sure everyone else around you also is a part of that picture. That's not the way that this is formulated. All right, so the first thing is there's a breadth to the covenant. That's piece one. Great. Let's go on. I'm making this covenant, this breach, says God, not only with you who are gathered here today, but with those who are not here. This is on some level the most significant line to my mind, which is to say, the part that's really counterintuitive to our contemporary ears, the covenant from the first moment is made with people who have not yet been born, who do not yet exist. Okay? In a straight way, without any ambiguity, the Torah tells us how our future Jews, just to speak anachronistically here, okay? Future Jews coming from the Israelites, how are future Jews going to enter into the covenant? Not by standing up and self-authoring it, by, but by being born into it. Now, of course, by the time you get to a rabbinic interpretation, rabbinic understanding of the Torah, of course, there is a way to join the covenant midlife in the sense of being converted, taking on a Jewish body, a Jewish identity, joining the Am. But the rhetoric here, first of all, is focused on the inheritance descent piece. 
And it's important to note, even for Chazal, the rabbinic understanding of what this means that includes conversion is that someone who becomes a Jew doesn't actually just become a Jew. They become the ancestor of a new Jewish germline, right? The whole model is built on, actually, when you join the Jewish people, you just stand at Sinai as if you were there in that first moment. And like the people who stood there, all of your kids are in that covenant, whether they want to be or not. All right? That's the piece here that is transgenerational. Okay? Again, not at all an obvious way to form a group, or not the only way to form a group. Even a group with serious commitments, right? Think about groups that are, you know, have membership dues and societies where, great, they can have all kinds of rules, and what you do is, each generation, you're recruiting new members, right? It's a very different model that the Torah is laying out here, which is the Brit is actually made now for all time in the future, all right? That's feature two, and that already gives us a hint of, right, the, the sort of broad comprehensive piece, I would suggest, already gives a sense of the non-voluntary nature of the covenant. Because when you're including all of these people who are adjuncts in all kinds of ways, how much agency do the wives and the children here have to opt out, right? Even in that moment. But then it's ratcheted up even further where, well, obviously the as yet unborn generations cannot opt out if they are being entered into it before they even exist. And that is then clarified in the last piece. In case you were wondering, can I opt out? The Torah clarifies, Pen bachem. I lay this all out for you, and here are the sanctions, because I'm actually worried there are some people in your midst, maybe even an entire tribe, that are going to say, we'd rather worship other gods. We'd rather be engaged in a different set of assumptions. We actually are not interested in this framework. We've seen it, we've considered it, not interested in doing it. And that person will say, they will kind of, with a sense of being uh, given full license, will say to themselves, Shalom it'll be fine. I'm gonna do what I want. Okay, on some of a derogatory description of what we might refer to at a later, in a later vernacular as autonomy. Like, this is, I'm, I'm going to decide who I'm going to be, and that will be fine. The text, very harshly here with the sanctions being laid out very clearly, lo Hashem God will not forgive that person. It is not their right to take that step out. And in fact, they will be separated out uh, by receiving sort of the punishments and threats and all the things, all the kind of nasty things that are laid out in Parshat Kitavo right before this passage uh, is delivered. All right, that's the piece that here really hammers home the heteronomy of this covenant. Hetero, other, nomos, law, a law that comes from the outside. A law that I am not authoring myself but that actually, by its design, right, not as a bug, but as a feature, by its design, is something that is uh, bestowed upon me and in my entirety and in my entire being, okay? So this is really just sort of part one of uh, laying out on some level what I'm saying is kind of the, the challenge for any, try, any effort to think about a meaningful space for autonomy in the context of the covenant, 
but just descriptively to kind of note before one even gets to, do I like this? Do I not like this? Does this make me feel actually really excited in the ways that Ravavi talked about in her introduction, the ways in which actually obligation and expectation uh, beckon in a way that options like open something up but don't call us? Do I feel, yes, this is exactly what I'm signed up for? Am I squeamish? Do I feel oppressed by it? Those are all on some level uh, secondary, I don't mean in the sense of less important, but they're the questions you reach after what I just want us to get, which is to understand how this whole thing is set up. If you just want to describe what is the covenant between God and the Jewish people as laid out by the Torah, it is comprehensive with everyone who is in the group, it is transgenerational, and it is heteronymous. Okay, just pause there for a minute. Questions or comments on this initial passage or anything that you feel, oh, we glossed that over. Why don't you, you know, look at this from a different perspective or a point that seems missed that, you know, drives this home. Yeah. There's an underlying assumption in the Torah because it's unfathomable that it would be otherwise, that it's either your covenant with God or other gods. But in our co modern context, what's most, most likely is not that I'm leaving Judaism or Jewish practice for another religion or another God, but for eight, or for no God at all whatsoever. And so what would, how would that, how would that sort of play into this dynamic? Great, so I think that's a great question. And I, I would translate it almost, it's almost like two interpretational questions that you could break that down into. When we say, uh, are we talking about like, well, it's a, we're actually concerned here about a specific act of idolatry. And therefore, well, if I'm in a case where people are leaving, but they're not necessarily engaging that act of idolatry, so is that what the Torah is talking about? That's one kind of a question, as opposed to perhaps that phrase means just that's what you do. Like when, when you leave one culture, like certainly in the world of this text, like, well, every culture has its God. So you're not going to like go somewhere and not worship a God, right? It's just almost shorthand for I want to go worship those other gods is, I want to live in that culture, right? I don't want to be bound by all the things of this culture. That culture seems like it has it better. So that's one question, right? Then the other thing, that's on the interpretation of kind of the text. The other thing I would put out, which I'll also leave open, um, is we could interrogate your description also of what it is today for someone to leave in the sense of, we could question, I think, all cultures, actually, whether or not they have gods, actually have all kinds of norms and all kinds of rules and all kinds of assumptions. And in that sense, there might still be a case in which, well, no, people aren't actually just throwing off the shackles of one thing to be free. They might, more than we admit or realize at first, be switching normative frames one for the other. But I'm not going to resolve that, right? Just note that, yes, those are important questions of how we even get to translating this, which I'd like to come back to at the end in the third piece. OK? Yeah, Ayala. I don't quite remember what the dots are hiding. <laughs> the ellipses. Always check what's in the ellipses. Yeah. <laughs> There's also no tshuva. There's no tshuva, there's no repentance. Possibly you could read it. And, and therefore what? And therefore, I don't know if those assumptions are... Uh, since today there is the idea of tshuva, I don't know if this is something that's also like to be that strict and um, basic. 
Okay, so if we think we did some interesting learning in the yeshiva last week that a number of folks, uh, both full-time yeshiva students and some folks who were here for the executive seminar were a part of, which is really thinking about kind of the history and nature of tshuva and where that comes in as a concept and thinking about reading various texts as maybe not having an idea that you can kind of go back and reinvent yourself. Maybe there's a kind of almost a binary here of you accept it or you don't accept it because we have a text here whose language is all about uh, not being able to recover from sin in some way. And once we come to the notion of the possibility of perpetual self-reinvention, how do we know how the rest of this gets contextualized? Good. So that, I would say, is true in terms of potentially whether the individual is irrevocably cut off or not forgiven or all of that piece. I don't think... Uh, we, well, I wouldn't even say I don't think. It, it's not the case. We know, right, that even in the rabbinic world where there is an embrace, at least in certain degrees, of tshuva as the possibility of the individual uh, reinventing themselves, there's still a notion, though, the way you get into the covenant is by inheriting it, or a main mode, right, of getting into the covenant is by inheriting it, whether then the last piece here of God separating you out, et cetera, et cetera, is so final, those are important questions for the role of the individual. Great. Maybe one last comment on this. Yeah, what have you got? Yeah, so I was interested in your framing of, well, the women and children probably can't imagine acting like a slice of like, now that the house is like an option in, and that was interesting I just like can't imagine like, they're standing there, like, by the door to, what, it's just gonna, some, like, so, so some, like, adult man who's, like, not bound to other people is just going to be, like, okay, bye, and, like, walk away. And so I'm interested in both, like, the elements of that as, like, no, like, they're actually all bound by virtue of being in a community, so that's, like, a sort of coercive power, and also just the, like, sheer, like, materialism here, like, yeah, they have to go to the land of adults, because that's where they're going to get land, so that's where they kind of, so that's where they can live. And I'm interested in the, like, material piece. Yeah, good. Okay, so I want to go part to your part, double down on your point, but then also offer maybe another perspective of why this is here. So, yeah, on some level, you could correctly say, well, as sort of like linguistic and social uh, conventions of, well, who do we think of in general as having what degree of freedom uh, and what degree of autonomy and boundedness and all of that stuff? Uh, sure, there's some variability the way I'm talking about but actually, if you look at the moment where they are, yeah, it actually makes sense on some level that they're all sort of over a barrel here waiting to get into the land, still dependent on the man, et cetera, et cetera. That said, where I want to say that maybe there is a kind of reckoning here already with the notion that people may be wanting to opt out, this parshiot that we've been reading these past few weeks actually talk about all kinds of conquests that happen on the east side of the Jordan, have weird phrases like Vayeshev Yisrael Be'eretz Ha'emori. They have actually started to settle down. In a couple weeks, we're going to hear about two and a half tribes that are going to say, nope, actually, we're done. We are not going in. And whether this is actually a moment of anxiety of who knows if everyone is going to go in, Truth be told, actually, it inverts also the status of the women and the children, who are the ones who are Davka sitting in the array of Mifsar in the cities while those two and a half tribes are going to fight. So 
those questions are very important. We'll come to that, I think, a little bit in the next bit. What are the different things that bind us? Um, but yeah, I think there may be here actually a moment of recognizing, oh, like why does the Brit need to be redone in our vote Moav? Uh, or done for the first time for this generation? Uh, because it's not self-evident that if we just ran straw poll, who wants in and is coming in, that that's going to win, OK? Um, and so we're setting something up there. OK, good. I want you to hold that, just sort of take that piece of the background conditions here for the way the Torah thinks about where obligation comes from. Um, and fundamentally, it comes from uh, some, eventually, right? It comes from some ancestor who bestowed it on you, right? Again, even if you take it on, you are creating descendants whose answer is going to be, oh, yeah, this is because someone took this on. All right, now I want to shift gears entirely to a totally uh, kind of more detailed area uh, of both Jewish law um, and another piece of uh, Torah here that I want to argue is the closest we would come to seeing how Chazal grappled with the fact that on the one hand, there's all these terms of the covenant that just apply to people without them ever being really consulted in any way. And there is a real space whereby people determine how they are committed to, to live their own lives. And how do we navigate between those two? And that plays out by one of the mitzvot, which is about the way you can whether you should is a separate question, but the way you can bind yourself to certain things simply by force of your own will and declaration, and those things end up having biblical force. All right, that is broadly speaking the realm of nidarim and shvuot, vows and oaths. And we're just going to look at a couple pieces here that I want to understand on their own terms, but then think about, well, how do this interact with all the other things that the Torah says you have to do? Okay, so. In Bemidbar, we're on page two. In Bemidbar, we have a one-line, pretty simple description. If someone takes a vow or an oath, they swear, I will do such and such. I will not do such and such. Whatever they say, they must do. Now, on some level, the plain meaning of this verse is Ki yidor neder lashem is probably actually on its plain sense like you promise to give something as a gift to God, to the temple. And shvu'ah le'esor isar al nafsho is some version of you take on some added restriction perhaps in the service of God such that it is an act of religious piety. But as we'll see, the way this is arguably read in its plain sense, but certainly read by rabbinic sources is, no, this actually hands over the keys pretty fully to you to say by an oath form kind of anything. That you can say, I will never play Scrabble again under an oath. And suddenly that becomes your 614th commandment, okay? Or, I swear, right, to get a little more practical where these things actually like came up, uh, I know technically as a man I am permitted to take two wives under biblical and basic rabbinic law, but I'm going to take an oath that I will never marry a second woman. 
okay, in a way that is adding a requirement with biblical force where there had been none. Right? But in a way that potentially opens up a huge zone of the Torah actually giving what I want to argue here is best understood as an autonomous zone to the individual through the act of neder and shvuah to actually construct biblically binding and divinely sanctioned requirements, codes for oneself of one how, is, one, how one is supposed to live. Sometimes the Torah has a few like prepackaged deals on that, like the nazir. Okay? Where it's like, if you say Nazir, you just get with one word by saying, I'm going to be a Nazarite, we throw in for free wine, haircuts, not defiling to the dead. It's just put together as one package. But that actually, that's what you have there in the next, uh, in the next piece there, but that's just a, a fundamental manifestation of this larger mode that you can bind yourself in this way. And in fact, However much we can quibble over whether Bemidbar chapter 30 is really only about giving gifts to God or doing acts of piety, and Bemidbar chapter 6 is about an institution of a Nazir, of a Nazarite, actually Vayikra Perak Hey seems pretty clear when it says, O nefesh kiti If someone takes an oath to express with their lips, right, to articulate in language anything that can be articulated as a vow. Now this phrase, lehara o which literally, we'll come back to it, means whether for bad or for good, is just, uh, is just seems to be a biblical idiom for anything, right? What does God say when he appears to Lavan in a dream prior to, be, to meeting Yaakov the next day? Don't speak to Yaakov, mitov adra. Right? Mitov adra is just, it's the full spectrum. I don't care how good it is, I don't care how bad it is, or anything in between, don't speak. Laurao leitiv, right, seems to be, and in that sense, by the way, like, Vara, right? Some people think that that's, well, that's a euphemism for sex or for sort of knowledge of, you know, the intimate aspect of human life. It may also be in a way of, yes, you know everything. Right? Or, asher lo yadu tov your kids, they don't know anything. Right? They're totally ignorant. So, here, probably in the plain sense of the Torah, means anything. We're actually saying if you take a vow, no matter what it's about, and then it, it slips your mind, or you stop focusing on it, okay, and therefore you violate the vow, well, then you have to bring a korban. You actually have to bring. Uh, some kind of sacrifice to atone because the Torah cares about your self-imposed vow. Your self-imposed oath matters to the Torah and there are consequences for it and therefore built into the Torah's normative system are the things that you impose on yourself. Okay? Again, in a very clear way, you take an oath, I am never going to eat fish again. Okay? I think my daughter practically, in fact, does this, but she never took the oath, thank God, okay? But I'm never going to eat fish. That actually becomes one of the machalot asurot for you. It becomes one of the things that is treif, that you're not allowed to eat in addition to everything else. And if you mess up and eat fish, and this is actually the interesting thing, actually the punishment is more severe. You have to bring a sacrifice 
As opposed to if you just eat pig, so you get lashes. I don't know, none of us is lining up to get lashes, but malkot at the end of the day is corporal punishment that's like, stop doing that, don't do that. Okay, but it's not really the same level of, you need to atone for this, this is a korban asham. All right? So I'm arguing to you, instead of viewing what we're about to see as kind of just rabbinic descent into the arcana of some weird verse that happens to impose some bizarre uh, requirements if you happen to say a certain shvua formulation, what we're actually entering into is much deeper into the question of does the Torah kind of recognize some autonomous zone? And then the interesting thing, as you can imagine, is going to be Ah, what if I get up and swear that I will never put on tefillin? <laughs> what happens? Do I melt down? Like, what happens? Does the whole thing collapse, right? Or is there a way of, of just having some kind of arbitration between those competing views, and what is it? How do we come out the other end, okay? Just before we go, we go further, like, wh what do you think? Like, based on just these psukim and what it seems they're bringing to the table, they sit alongside all the other things in the Torah that demand things and forbid things. And I'm just asking you the basic question of, give me an algorithm, give me a system. Because we do now see what you can't avoid is that there is some Torah-sanctioned autonomous zone. Where does it extend and where does it intersect with the heteronymous covenant in which it's embedded? So, yeah, a, a couple thoughts on this. Yeah, Sean. Yeah, so on the one hand, it's, it's a ton of its own. Our, our tradition seems to fight back to the specific. But like a Nazir, you bring a Korban Khatat at the end. And also, every single year, in the most important prayer service, the most important prayer is a whole sense of, we, we, we were sort of at the possible bounds that we took that we have to get rid of it and like at the very beginning of the most important day of the year. So it seems as if, even if these verses allow for autonomy, when autonomy is the bedrock of West of like modernity, and even though the Torah has an outlet, it's like it we immediately close it. Good. I, I, ultimately, I want to show how that's very much the case of how this operates. But but I want to I want to emphasize what you've said and distinguish two things that are not the same. You are correctly pointing to what we haven't yet encountered. Won't really get into too much, which is the notion that there is a question of yeah, but should I take the oath? Okay? And that is indeed very important. That's very important as a notion of kind of what's my educational, religious, communal policy about all kinds of things. How do I want to direct people? And ultimately, to the extent I have a very strong attitude of people shouldn't be taking oaths at all, and I really ban it from any kind of religious practice, you're right, we might not come across actually meaningful clashes all that much. That is and must be separate from the question of, yeah, but what if I do it anyway? What happens, and what does that tell me about the nature of the thing and the covenant? Right? Like in the context of, let's say, uh, in the context of laws of kiddushin, okay, and, and sort of relationships and the arayot, okay, which relationships are forbidden, permitted, etc., right? There too, there are some relationships where we say, well, if a brother and sister marry each other in some kind of ceremony, it never happened, right? It is legally null and void. There is no ability to impose that from within the framework of 
how the Torah thinks about what relationships are in, bound or in bounds or not. Whereas there are other relationships, particularly ones around the kihuna and other contexts where it's understood that, well, you shouldn't do that, but if those people got married, it's a binding marriage that you have to deal with the consequences of. Okay? And that actually tells you something about, oh, what's the nature of those two different prohibitions? So even if we're anti-shvua, watching how the shvua behaves when placed in interaction with other mitzvot, I want to argue will tell us something about what are those other mitzvot. Okay? Great. Yes, please. So you were talking about your question, I guess, the sources ahead are talking about uh, taking a vow to not do, to violate a mitzvah. What would be, could you take a vow to perform a mitzvah saying, you know, I swear I will put a Good. So let's get into this right now. Okay, that's where the sifra is going to take. I'll just take one. We're going to go right there. Yeah, with one more comment. So maybe just in, in response to what you answered here, I'd like to hear you explain why we collectively became anti-Shulah and what's behind that. Yeah, okay, so let's see. I think we're going to loop back to that to the end. I'm not sure I have a definitive answer. On some level, I'm sharing some of this because I think it may give some feeling about that. But let's see, right? Is it, I guess the only thing I'll hint to is, yeah, is there some fear of the Pandora's box of autonomy that is opened up, right, by Shua in some way or not? And I think we're going to see a range of sources that may have different levels of anxiety around this. Great. Let's move forward to the Sifra, okay? The Sifra on the bottom of two and into three is the early, uh, early Midrasha comment from the time of the Mishnah on the book of Vayikra, and it is specifically going to engage directly this question of the interaction between taking a vow, taking an oath that is autonomously imposed when it interacts with heteronymous obligations. All right, so can I, let's read this. I'll refer back to the Midrash Halacha language as we need to in the original. Let's have someone to read uh, in the English uh, just for the group, if you can do it nice and loud. Any volunteer? Please, Zan, give it to us nice and loud. One might have thought that when one takes an oath to violate a mitzvah and she does not violate it, she would be liable to bring an offering for an oath on utterance. To counter this, the verse states, to do evil or to do good. Just as doing good is referring to an oath about an optional action, so too doing evil is referring to an oath about an optional action. We therefore exclude from liability one who takes an oath to violate a mitzvah so that she is exempt from bringing the offering. Okay, so our first category is hanishba la'avor al-hamitzvah. Okay? Someone who takes an oath to violate a mitzvah. And what does this midrash do? What's the bottom line holding of this text? Were you able to follow? What's the... Uh, What's the result? You take an oath like that, I hereby swear that I am going to violate this mitzvah. Does the oath take effect or not? It does not. You are not liable. And what is the midrashic hook and explanation? Leharau leitiv is not a general idiomatic expression for anything. It's actually for a subset of things that can be described as being related to good or bad. The specific move here is to say, well, just as doing good, right, is about something that is optional, which is to say, leitiv is something that 
uh, you can talk about as, oh, I'm kind of going above and beyond, I'm doing something nice, et cetera, et cetera. So the lihara must be parallel to that, and the bad thing that you're doing can't be violating something you are already expected to do. Okay? We can argue, is that the plain sense of the verse, etc., but it is noting that that phrase, laura ulaitiv, presumably is doing some work. And the effect of this midrash is so right off the bat, we have dramatically circumscribed this, uh, this autonomous zone and said it cannot encroach onto the violation of a mitzvah. All right, that's piece one. Take us now to the next bit, perhaps. This is the question we had a minute ago. What if I take an oath that I'm going to put on tefillin? I take an oath that I'm going to sit in a sukkah, and then I don't do that thing. <coughs> Normally, when I don't do a positive commandment, what are the consequences? Basically nothing. Like maybe I bring an olah, but there's no real consequences, no corporate punishment, corporal punishment. Uh, and, uh, but by adding the oath, Maybe now I have to bring the asham, the guilt offering, because I've kind of upped the ante. So you can imagine someone who is like, I have a very hard time getting a shul on time to hear shofar on Rosh Hashanah. But if I swear that I'm going to do it, and I know I'll have to bring an asham, then I'm going to get there on time. And then they sleep in anyway, right? Do you have to bring an asham in that case? Okay, so we're going to hear about Yehuda ben Betera's position. So Zam, continue. So here's a very logical argument. Rabbi Yehuda ben Meteira says, yeah, 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 I get that you can't take an oath to violate a mitzvah. But you should be able to have a binding oath to fulfill a mitzvah. Because think about it. I can turn, uh, I can turn something like, I can take an oath that I'm going to play tennis this afternoon and turn that into a bona fide obligation that I have to bring in asham for. And that, and this is a key phrase I want to zero in on, is not something on which I am mushbave omed mehar Sinai. I am under a standing oath from Mount Sinai. In other words, it has no gravity, and yet, through my saying something, I can give it significant weight. Shouldn't it be something that already has gravity, because I am mushbave omed mehar Sinai, I should be able to upgrade it further. Right? I'm not taking, there's something absurd, Rabbi Yehuda ben Betera is saying, I'm going to bring in Asham for not playing tennis, but I'm not going to bring in Asham for not sitting in a sukkah? That doesn't make any sense to him. Okay? To which they respond, the Chachamim, the sages respond, Scripture has, in that case, made negative equal to positive reliability. But how can you say that for an oath to fulfill a commandment, it's 
scripture has not in that case been negative, he would positive. Or if he swore to annul a commandment and did not annul it, Okay, we're not going to get deep into the hein kelav formulation here, lav kehein in the original, but the negative positive language here is saying the Chachamim come back and they say, yeah, but Rabbi Yudah ben Betera, even you agree to the first part of this Midrash. You agree that a person cannot take a vow that they are going to eat pig and have it take effect. And therefore, once you agree that that kind of vow is illegitimate. It has to be parallel for all mitzvot in the Torah, including the positive ones. It just has to be a zone where the oaths do not, are not chalot, right? They do not actually take effect in that zone at all. You've made a very nice local logical inference by comparing tennis with pork, uh, with the sukkah, right? But it actually doesn't work that way. We have to think about this of realms that either can be, the Torah is kind of just neutral on. Do you flip your behavior this way or that way? It doesn't care whether you play tennis or not, as opposed to things where the Torah is actually invested whether you do it this way or the other. Now, the key phrase here on some level, which is being tussled over exactly what it means, is mushbave omed mehar sinai, okay? Which on some level is a very striking and very powerful phrase, which is the notion that I, standing here today in this room in 5759, am under an oath that I never took, I do not remember taking, None of my parents or grandparents remember taking, but that has somehow flowed down in my veins to me such that I am under oath as if I am at the foot of the mountain. Okay? And the way we think about these mitzvot as, is literally as having been imposed upon us as an oath. Now, Rabbi Yehuda ben Betera thinks there's sometimes where you should be able to add on an oath on top of that. But actually, the shared discourse here is the reason autonomy is impossible in a full kind of throttle way is you are already under a supreme jurisdiction that has struck it down, okay? Or makes it impossible to come in except where it lets it in. So the Torah under this reading, right, this is a very clear reading of, yeah, that whole autonomous zone that you, that you saw, that, at least for now it appears, that is only let in in the negative space of the mitzvot. First, you fill up all the things that are mushbaba omed mehar sinai, you're under a standing oath to fulfill them, to avoid them from the Sinai moment. Then we can see what's left. Great. By the time you're done, davening, shachrit, musaf, mincha, mariv, having three meals, it's like, great, you want to read a book for an hour, fine. Okay? <laughs> but Actually, that's the only place where this goes in. You don't get to reconfigure the system in any way, even though, right, as I think we pointed out, it's not totally obvious that that's the only way to read the verses in the Midbar, but I think this is, it's intuitive. I don't think anyone here is shocked, right, that this would be the rabbinic reading of the Torah. And on some level, what I'm invested here in, in you seeing that, it's not just sort of a power play of, might also be that, but it's not just a power play of, I'm interested in this, I'm not interested in that, my thing is going to win. It's a whole theory of covenantal obligation that you are a priori under oath, such that the other oath has no space to come in. 
all right? In a way that has nothing to do with you electing to take that oath. Okay, just pause there to take a, any question on this before we get to the next wrinkle. Yeah. So here, I don't want to go, it's a very important point. I want, I want to take two things from it, not go too far down this road, but I think it's actually very important for people to have in the back of their heads. The first point is what you're saying, the core point you're saying is, let's, as we start to notice features of this, look for the ways in which other systems and other contexts we're familiar with. Well, of course, this is how it works as well. And there's all kinds of things about paying your taxes, et cetera, being born here that you are not, uh, you are not particularly choosing and you are bound to. Right? And that's correct. And part of this is to understand the intricacies of the biblical rabbinic system, but part of it is also to notice the things in the broader world that are that uh, way. There are lawyers in the room who can speak to the second point much better than me, but I will say it is also worth noting, though, the things that are in fact different, which is to say, okay, assuming you find another country that's willing to have you, which is not always so simple, right? you can actually leave. Okay. And the other thing that's more, I think, interesting and complicated is the way in which citizenship is passed down, however, in different countries is not the same, right? So many more European countries have systems where you prove that you have some Hungarian ancestor. So you can then go back even though you haven't lived there at all and essentially get citizenship again. In the United States, that's true for like a limited period of time under a certain set of circumstances with enough parents that bother to make their lives hell and go to the embassy a couple times, had to do that, um, where you, uh, you maintain some notion, but fundamentally it's actually mainly determined by territory, right, as opposed to by some kind of ethnic group. And in that sense, it's a little more like a system of, well, who is here right now? And they're all in, because they're all here, as opposed to etashere nenupo. I don't think we could talk about the American notion of citizenship, for example, as, oh, there's some American citizen not yet born 500 years from now who I have no idea where they're going to be born or what their ancestors are going to have done in the interim, but I know he's a citizen. That's not really actually how the system works. So that's where we still see some things that are distinctive here, but they may also not be unique. Okay? Great. Yeah. Or even if, they, if, if you thought about, like, what if someone took an oath to 
say, I will not violate Shabbat, right? Why doesn't that, why wouldn't that oath stand and say, okay, and if you violate Shabbat, you just get hit twice? Right, so first of all, Rabbi Yehuda ben Betera, I think would probably say that, right? Once you're talking about an oath not to violate Shabbat, Rabbi Yehuda ben Betera would probably say, that's additive. Yes, that's exactly what should happen. Whereas the other view is saying, all right, and may go to Chaim's question of what we're doing with this whole discourse around Shvu'ah in general, we don't actually want the realm of Shvu'ah to touch the realm of Mitzvah. They are sort of non-overlapping jurisdictions in a way that the second you start to let it in in one place, who knows where it's going to end up, which is what the next source is going to confirm in just one second. Okay? Jessica, one more comment, and then I want to see the Yerushalmi. Yeah. Born into a three because he didn't shoot right? Because his mother commanded that he have to be in his ear. Mm-hmm. Right? And that, that's sort of like a parallel to us, maybe. And then he's a disaster, right? He tries to, he thinks he's autonomous in his life, and he isn't. Every time he tries to leave our culture and connect to the Philistine culture and serve his autonomy, it backfires on him and it gets worse and worse and worse. And I, I wonder, like, are we supposed to take from that, um, don't fight it? because it will go badly for you, or... This is a bad system. Right. Right, so uh, look, we could have an even deeper discussion about the other group that's like that uh, in that sort of hardwired way, our Kohanim, right? Who are sort of mm-hmm. descended, so in our world, that e- even if you're following all the things the Shulchan Aruch says about the Kohanim today, it's relatively thin. Right? That doesn't mean even there it doesn't get sticky in certain contexts, but it's relatively thin. Imagine in a system where it's like, no, like you're born into your job. Right? You are actually born into what you are going to do for the rest of your life and what people, right? Just imagine, right? Imagine a system where like all rabbis are born rabbis. Like you know that they're going to be rabbis, right? Like, what does that mean? What does that system do? What are the ways in which that system fell apart, not only because the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, but perhaps because that ended up not being a great way to organize it? On the other end, we could talk about the ways in which, you know, having a fully elective model loses other kinds of things. But yeah, I think that question is on the table, right? What are the, certainly from the narrative perspective, but let's turn now to see where they, I think, let autonomy in a little more. I'm not sure why, to be honest, if it's just technical or there's something else, but it gets in the door. Page three at the bottom, the Talmud Yerushalmi. Shvu'ah shalo ochal matzah. Someone says, I take an oath, I will never eat matzah. Asur lochal matzah beleleya pesach. They are forbidden from eating matzah at the Seder. But, shelo ochal matzah beleleya pesach, loke veochel matzah. If they say, I swear I'm not eating matzah at the Seder, that is then, the reason it's loke, you get lashes, is that is a shvuat shav. That is simply an oath in vain. It is null and void the second it left your, ma- your, your, second it left your mouth. You are therefore liable for taking God's name in vain and you know, taking an oath in a way that you should have. But the oath cannot actually affect the obligation. But note here, it's not actually a problem of the shvu'ah interfering with the world of mitzvah. 
it seems to be about the articulation of the shvua is either articulated as an act of rebellion and rejection against the system or as something that is much larger that happens to have some interference at the margins with the system. Okay? There is a difference potentially between saying, uh, I am a vegetarian, and then showing up at the Korban Pesach and saying, oh, this is, I don't know what to do here, right? Everyone's supposed to eat meat, as opposed to, I w and, and potentially saying, well, maybe I have to figure out what the vegetarian does at the Korban Pesach, as opposed to someone who says, I think the Korban Pesach is disgusting, I'm never going to eat it. Right? Those are two very different things, even if their behavior at the Seder and the restored Mikdash looks the same, right? They're both just saying, right, can, I, can you have the rice and beans, uh, right? Right, the re reborn Beit HaMikdash, I think everyone's going to be eating kidney oat. Uh, but the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the framework is not about whether there is a contradiction between the Shavua, it seems, and the expectation of mitzvot. It's how did you say it, right? And look at the second one, which is a great example. Shaloh Eshev Batzel. I take an oath, I'm never sitting in the shade again. Can't sit in a sukkah on Sukkot. But if you say, I will never sit in a sukkah again, Okay, it's void, but uh, it's void and therefore nothing happened. What are we talking about? You know, like I go and find two kosher witnesses and say, oh, I'm not going to eat Korban Pesach, and therefore they need to like make a symbol out of me. Because I think until this point, we kind of were dealing with the universe in which this was maybe happening in someone's head. And this, or maybe not, but this seems to have veered now as though it's seemingly in public, because otherwise, I don't know how this makes sense. Yeah, so look, you don't really need witnesses for an oath to take effect in terms of its legal force, just garden variety oaths, or even for it to be public. The thing that having something be public or attested to by other people might get to is the way you can undo a, an oath, at least in rabbinic interpretation of the Torah, you can have charata and you can claim I didn't know what I was getting into and I need someone, a Beit Din or a Chacham to release the vow for me, but which is just a way of saying I made it under you know, incomplete information and therefore I have to uproot the vow as if I never took it in the first place. But assuming we're not going down that road, right, and it's not someone who's reassessing what they did, yeah, this can just happen kind of in any context. And what I'm suggesting here, I'm not sure I can really prove this to you one way or the other historically. You know, if you read, uh, if you read Shaul Lieberman's uh, Greek and Hellenism in Jewish Palestine, you'll see he has a whole chapter there on vows and oaths where he shows you, look, this was actually like a real thing in the Greco-Roman world in which Chazal were found. People go around and they make oaths on all kinds of things and Chazal did not love it, but it was also a part of their uh, landscape. In, in that spirit, but pushing a little further, what I'm suggesting, and I don't know if it's shot or it's more, I think these are interesting sources to help us think about questions we're asking today. Yeah, I am suggesting these are not just, ooh, I found a weird technical thing, let's see how it behaves. I am actually venturing that 
the, the whole discourse here is indeed imagining, if not responding to actual people who for whatever reason are saying, I am committed to not doing X, okay? It, meaning, it, imagine for a minute to sort of up what the dilemma is, okay? Imagine if every time you encountered a contemporary Jew who was like, I find X mitzvah to be offensive, okay? Or I don't do X, or I refuse to do Y. If you translated that for a minute, what does it look like if you imagine them as saying, shvua shalom ba pa pa? Okay? I'm actually suggesting to you, I think anthropologically, this is not that different. I don't know what the motivations are in all the cases. I don't know what's pushing someone to articulate this, but they're imagining, yeah, there might be someone who, look, it could be as simple as I hate matzah. Okay? But maybe it's something more profound that's like, I don't want to be a part of that in some way. Certainly anyone who would say, I'm taking an oath, I'm not going to eat matzah at the Seder. I'm going to eat it the rest of the year, but not at the Seder. So that's an act of a certain degree of right, defiance against communal norms, expectations. Go back to our earlier source. That is someone who is trying on some level, through the Torah's limited grant of autonomy, to throw off the heteronomous obligation to eat matzah the Seder, that this source shuts down. What's surprising is that the source does not shut down the possibility that there might be incidental limits, incidental, not sort of my main goal, limits on the application of parts of the heteronomous elements of the covenant that are played out through someone exercising that autonomous zone. Yeah? Is the idea perhaps Once you said I shall not eat matzah, not eating matzah on the on, uh, on the seder is no longer an autonomous choice because you're under the vow. In other words, if I didn't make a vow and I just didn't do it, what's the consequence? What's what's the consequence of that? Yeah. So in the context of not eating matzah, yeah. it's a bitul say no consequences. no consequences. But here trying to get if it's different. If now, it, it not only does it not have a consequence, but you're sort of exempted from it. So let's play out what it is. Right. So now, exempt starts to verge into what was raised earlier, which is are we endorsing this behavior or just describing consequences after the fact? But let's play this out. Asur lechol matzah right? That ruling, if you just said, I take a vow that I'm never eating matzah, this Yerushalmi would say to you, if you then sit down at your seder and eat matzah, you have to bring a korban asham. Because you have violated the Torah by eating matzah. How? How can that be? Well, because I took an oath because the vow is authorized by the Torah. Okay? Now, when it's a direct hit, on the mitzvah, null and void. Shuat shav, off the bat. But when it is incidental, it's like collateral damage to this evening, my general commitment of not eating matzah, according to the Yerushalmi, then it's in force. But they could just as easily have ruled that you cannot take a vow that would Yes, now they may indeed, this is the thing this text is silent about, we don't know. This text may say, I don't need to explain to you that this is a terrible thing you should never do. 
But that is a separate question from, but what happens if you do it? And once you've done it, what's the guidance you give to someone? I think it's pretty clear that however much this text hates that you took this vow, the guidance it is giving to someone who took that vow is you can't eat matzah at the Seder. It says, asur. We can't tell you to do a thing that will violate a negative prohibition in the Torah that's going to trigger an asham. Now that's the crazy thing because you're like, but what negative prohibition in the Torah? You creating it. Okay? But that's what creates that problem. Yeah, Ravelli. To bring it to the, um, I think what you're trying to do is, is there any backdoor way for autonomy to come in to the covenant? And, and it seems like if you step it up even one more, it's based on not just that I don't like matzah, but I actually have a moral conflict with something that also, incidentally, is part of the covenant. Like if you said, I think we had students who in early years, well, if I believe in not harming animals, could I have vegetarian filling? Right. But you might say, well, you take an oath and you say, I will never harm an animal. I will never wear leather. Right. I will never wear leather. Would you be ex exempt from tefillin? They would tell you, you're a, well, you're a sewer to put on tefillin. That's the, here, that's actually great that you just said that. No. You are obligated. <laughs> you are obligated in tefillin. And it's forbidden for you to put them on. Because putting them on would be worse then failing to fulfill your then right fulfilling your obligation okay then failing to fulfill your obligation right now again I just put my cards on the table. I'm actually not, those of you who know me, I'm not so interested in autonomy as a backdoor into the <laughs> covenant, but I am interested in probing where does it and where doesn't it come in and what do we learn about what's happening here. And I am interested in learning well, how, how does this work and how did this play out. Again, on some level I want to affirm what John said earlier, which is the question of like where, what's our preference? Do we ever want people to behave this way? We'll get to this at the very end. That, on some level, is the most important question uh, in terms of what do we actually tolerate in our communities or educate people to do or encourage people to do. But I don't think that exempts us from saying, but how does it actually function? And with this, Yerushalmi introduces the notion, yeah, that's, that's exactly, it's the clearest case, right? Someone says, I take an oath, I will never wear leather. This Yerushalmi would say, it's forbidden for you to put on tefillin. Okay? Now, whether you like want that person in your community to daven for the amud, the this, those are the other things of what am I building. But if you're just asking what's the guidance I give them, no, you can't put on tefillin. You took an oath. There's one way out of it, which we'll get to it at the end. Yeah. But I have a question. At the time of Chazal, we didn't have Now we have Koniterate. Koniterate basically tells us you make a vow, it's invalid. Good. Okay. So hold, so hold that. All right. That's where I want. Let, let me just take. All right. Let me take one last, two last comments. All right. And I want to see the last thing. Yeah. So, am I understanding this right? That this depends on the, uh, the, the violating the shvua would be a lotase, and it's a conflict with the ase, and so the lotase wins. Is that? Is that? Yeah, though I'm not sure it's just because it's a lota aseh, because normally in aseh versus a lota aseh, we would say the aseh wins. Right. But we have an asham attached here. <coughs> right? We have a thing where there is actually something that's going to mess things up that needs to be atoned for, not just a lack of discipline. Because as difficult as these examples are, 
there's a more difficult example. What about somebody who takes an oath to violate a lot? Good. I, I, I swear to wear shot. Good. Okay. Great. Okay. Great. Bleeder, as they say. Okay. So. So. The, uh, so the, the question is exactly that. Once we've established, okay, this text pokes some kind of hole in the fabric of the heteronymous covenant, right? Some way, okay, good, good. Uh, in some way that comes in, how big is that hole? Right? Is it a sort of precision, laser-guided thing that is only with the very limited circumstances we have here? Or is it something larger? Okay? That's what we're going to get to right now. I'm just going to give you your yeah, comment or question. Correct. Right. Could be health, preference, any number of things. Good question. I'm not sure if that's clear. That probably would reach a clear answer to that question by honing in on what's the problem here. Is the problem here a stance of rebellion? In which case, then that would seem very important. Or is it just, we're just trying to sort out the overlapping jurisdictions here. I don't really care what you think. I just care that they can't be in direct conflict. Okay, I gotta, I, I gotta, I gotta just give you the end here so we don't run, run out of time. The, the question that then comes up on the final pages here is playing that out. So a number of people ask, it already comes up in the Ramban, but I'm giving it to you here in the Tshuva of the Ran on page four. He has a case, it's kind of a crazy case. A guy has borrowed money on interest. Okay, he has illegally borrowed $100 and agreed to pay it back with interest. As you'll see in a minute, it's we beat the Rabbanan ultimately in this case. It's not biblical level interest, but for right now, it's interest. And at a certain point, he's like having a very hard time getting his act together to repay the loan. So he takes an oath. I'm going to repay you the loan and the interest by X date. Okay? So the question is, but he just took an oath to violate a biblical commandment because repaying interest is also biblically forbidden because you're like complicit in the system of enabling it to happen. Okay? So the Ron is engaging someone who's trying to figure out what does this guy do. So look what he says. He says, with regard to what you said, that the man should fulfill his oath with respect to the principle, but not the interest, that's correct. Right? Meaning it's not like we're going to say it was a loan with interest, so he doesn't own the principle back. Like he took, there is, you, you, would not, you would in fact say he might lose the principle in a regular loan. But once he's taken an oath, so the oath has enough force that he has to pay back what he legitimately borrowed. Okay? But you then engage, says the Ron, with the question of whether the oath would take hold to violate the mitzvah as well. Since perhaps by taking an oath on both the legal principle and the illegal interest, the oath might take hold on the interest as well. Meaning he read his Yerushalmi. If I just swear off matzah and it happens to hit the Seder, maybe it hits the Seder. So if I take a vow on this whole loan, which is mostly principle, 
Maybe I also am liable for not paying the interest and maybe I have to deal with the consequences of that. That's the argument proffered to the rung. What does he say? If you were asking whether one would be liable for a guilt offering and a sham for failing to perform this oath, basically you might have some argument there, but that's not what we're talking about. There's no guilt offerings, we're not doing any of that, so that's academic. If you were contemplating that a person might violate the prohibition on interest in order to fulfill his oath, since it was a shvua kolelet, it was a general and encompassing oath, no one would ever say such a thing. Zo lo amara adam me'olam. Chas v'shalom she'anishba le'echol nevelot u'shchutot yochleim k'day l'kayem shvuato. What? I go up, I'm at someone's house, and they, there's like a kosher table, meat of, a table of kosher meat, and a table of non-kosher meat. I can take an oath, I'm going to eat all the meat at this place. <laughs> and because it's legitimate for me to eat some of the meat, now I can eat all of the meat? Well, truth be told, that's one possible reading of the Yerushalmi, but the Ran says, but there's no way, and he, I think this is pshat, the Ran says, though it's not spelled out in the Yerushalmi, there's no way they're contemplating extending that regime to active violations of boundary mitzvot as opposed to enabling you to fail to perform. Okay, that is to say, the Yerushalmi is only about in rabbinic parlance a bitul ase, failing to fulfill a biblical commandment, not a kum ase, getting up and actually violating a lota ase. Okay, and here's where the Ran ramps it up even further, which is far from obvious. Afkan, even here, even though the interest here is actually only a rabbinic prohibition. In other words, he didn't borrow 100 and pay back 110. He borrowed 100 apples and agreed to pay back 100 apples, which is also not allowed because the price of apples can change in the meantime. And people can then speculate and basically prey on the person who borrows based on kind of playing the futures market. But that's only Durabana, okay? But here too, you do not have him, you do not obligate him even to pay the rabbinic violation because we hold the line on rabbinic prohibitions even in the face of biblical ones as long as you are just passively violating the biblical prohibition. So, the way we'll say, right, they'll say something like, oh, you don't have a, there's no Eruv, and I need to bring the shofar somewhere to be blown, okay? So a shofar is like a rabbinic, a biblical level mitzvah, and like carrying something in an area that like needs an Eruv, but it's not really a public space, like that's only a rabbinic violation. So shouldn't you do the rabbinic violation in order to fulfill the biblical mitzvah? So no, the answer is you don't, because actually you hold the line on that rabbinic prohibition rather than uh, you don't violate the rabbinic prohibition as long as all that you're doing is kind of sitting out the biblical mitzvah. The Ran, as a general approach here, what does he say? He says, yeah, in some ways bringing the Yerushalmi back to its most kind of narrow form, when you are, direct, when you are conflicting with the system, either directly, like in the I won't eat matzah at the Seder, or you are crossing any boundary, whether biblical or rabbinic, the oath does not apply. It is mushba ve'omed. You are there standing under a standing oath. By contrast, look at the Rosh on the bottom of the page, but this will have to end. Says the Rosh, you asked, if one took an oath to neglect a rabbinic mitzvah, 
like reading the Megillah or lighting Hanukkah candles, does the oath take hold and cancel the rabbinic mitzvah? Okay, I have been to Purim so many times, I can't take it anymore. Okay? And finally, I just am going to stand up and take an oath and say, I swear I am never going to listen to the Megillah again. Okay? Does that hold? Because what is he playing with here? What the Ron kind of glossed over, what he's playing with is, well, I might take a hard line and say a biblical level oath can never interfere with a biblical level mitzvah. But what do you mean that a biblical level thing that triggers an asham gets stopped by a rabbinic requirement? How could that be? And he says, we don't have time to do the Gemarai Nazir and the reading on which it's, uh, in which it's based, but just look, if you look, you could, we can look at it after. At the end, on the bottom there, it's clear from this that an oath takes hold with respect to any rabbinic mitzvah, and it becomes forbidden to perform it. So the Rosh's position is, if you take an oath, I swear I'm never lighting Hanukkah candles again. Direct, direct hit on it, you are not allowed to ever light Hanukkah candles again. And here's the shocking thing. So too, with respect to violating a rabbinic restriction, one should fulfill one's oath. So the Rosh actually seems to think, if you come along and there is an Isur de Rabbanan, there is something that is an actual prohibition, but it's only rabbinic, and you take a biblical level oath to do that thing, you are actually obligated to do it. Okay, now, this really does cause a meltdown. We don't have the time to go into the Bach, but just look at the final line in the Bach, which is from the Maharshal. Shuv matzati l'maharash luria shekatav ahach tshuva deharosh. The Maharshal writes several hundred years later about the Rosh. None of the other authorities agree with this, but look at the solution. You force him to undo the vow. Now what's interesting about that is, actually the marshal, for all he's upset about this, seems to agree with the Rosh that it's Chal. That is to say that the Shua does take force, and the only way he feels he can undo it is by undermining it. Now this, in a way, gets back to your question, right? Like, what is the dynamic that's happening here? We don't really have time for now the contemporary sociology discussion, but I'm happy to talk about it over lunch. Um, there seems to be something there in the Marshal that is less about, because he could have just sort of said, like the Ran, no, the Rosh is wrong. We follow the run. The Shvu'ah does not apply in a case where there's any kind of restriction. Okay? And instead, he says, well, it might be true that the Torah has opened up this grant of autonomy in a way that basically has the power to run roughshod over all of rabbinic law, but we don't want to live that way. And therefore, we're going to be in a situation where presumably, we certainly tell people never to make oaths like that in the first place. But if they do, we find a way to tell them to get out of it. And that goes back to your Kol Nidre question before of a system that's kind of saying, we don't want this messing with the system that much. But what I tried to share with you and sort of open up here is, I think I, I want you to take kind of two things from this. So one, 
that this is, I think, like a real problem and issue, and I think some of these sources are dealing with the fact that whatever your like grand theory is of what should be, the reality is that whenever you have heteronymous systems of expectations, there are going to be people looking to find ways to exert their autonomy within it, and that Unfortunately for the Torah, it had to go open its mouth and validate that, right? That's to say, at least as a matter of power, right? The Torah could have been formulated in a way in which there was no such thing. Meaning, who's the commander? God. That's it. Beginning, end of story. But part of God's command is, I'm giving you some zone where you get to command yourselves. Okay? And that just creates a sticky situation that is not because we sit in modernity, suddenly we have this problem, but actually from within the kind of the guts of the system uh, playing out some tension. But the other thing here, I think what you see at the end with the Marshal is some awareness that um, there is kind of like an ethos question that is also beyond the kind of like technical legal question, which is part of what I think you see the Marshal grappling with is, it's true, technically, you've constructed a case for me that I can't deny, where it seems like the, autonom the biblical autonomous zone has overwhelmed the rabbinic heteronymous zone. But my understanding of the DNA of the whole project is that this is fundamentally a mushba ve'omed system. This is a system that is supposed to kind of be experienced as we basically inherit our obligations. That is the way that all the main architecture of the system is set up. And therefore, to the extent it starts mucking with the ethos of that structure, we're going to find ways to discourage people from either taking advantage of that loophole, or they should find the loophole that will get them out of this autonomous zone, such that we're back where we think we belong. Where that leaves us, I'm going to leave open. It's a yom iyun. And like all good rabbinic passages that end with tzarich iyun, you have to think about it more. I'm going to end this discussion there. Shkoch. Thanks for listening. To learn more with Hadar, please visit hadar.org slash Torah.